Okay, so, um, wow, there was a lot in there. <laughs> I did a bit of a survey, and I'm going to come back on this and talk about all these aspects, but just a, a survey of different ways to uh, experience the body. So, uh, the Buddha, when in this uh, very famous discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, you can read it online, just tap that in the best way that you can. <laughs> Satipatthana Sutta, or Four Foundations, and you'll probably find this discourse, and it's very interesting. And so, the, the Buddha says, you know, like, uh, I'm going to paraphrase here uh, find a place where it's quiet, sit down and put in the forefront mindfulness or clear, caring, or some attention. I'm paraphrasing again here, but he's saying something like, put mindfulness into the forefront. It's like, as a, we could interpret it as, a, as the first value. The first value is not to fix the rest of the week or the rest of the season or something. The first value, what I'm giving value to, is presence. A presence that is... Uh, not scattered and uh, not like I'm giving a little bit of presence to the body but I still have a lot of things to take care of as we're meditating sometimes I'm sitting here but I'm still in the background fixing a few things because I'm being efficient I'm an efficient person it's really important I have things to do you know which is uh, what is called often the modern laziness of a spiritual seeker so how to be lazy be busy I'm a busy person I'm very very busy so I don't have time to actually stop and feel, which could lead me uh, to make some discoveries, but I don't do that because I'm a busy person, you know, I, and it feels really good, like I don't even feel lazy, <laughs> I feel important, and I feel like I have too much, <laughs> and so, in this, and so the Buddha says, put mindfulness, the real, whatever it's called, the real McCoy, <laughs> is that the expression, put that there, and so live experience like this, and then uh, discover the experience of the body. And the way he talks about this is body th- connecting with the body through breath, classic. We kind of all know this. If we know none, one thing about meditation is breath meditation. And so to discover the immediate experience through the body breathing, so it could be the whole body sitting, an awareness of the whole body sitting, and the body is breathing. It could be the breath just here or the breath just there, but getting acquainted with that phenomena of uh, being alive and, and everything it can lead to in the development of wisdom, how we can be touched, how it could be a doorway to emotion, to, oh, my God, I'm so... Like, you know, discover that I actually, oh, I feel, uh, I don't know, agitated. Because sometimes if I just put my attention on the breath, I'll notice the quality of my mind. You know, that this mind is completely occupied, under occupation, preoccupied. And uh, so it might be a doorway to this. It might be a doorway to the ephemeral, impossible to grasp nature of reality try to catch a breath you won't be able because it's it's dynamic and it's in a way it's transparent there's something felt but you can't actually acquire it it's a big big learning that can happen there about acquiring 
when I always want to acquire a new version of myself or a thing, or, and by becoming intimate with breath, I might learn in an inferential way by being with that, that actually nothing can be grasped at or owned in an absolute way. You know, even if I have the cash to get it, it still won't be mine because it's not possible to really be owned. Nothing. And so by coming to the breath, maybe in time, might take a few decades, <laughs> I'll be touched in this way, like, wow, it's so evanescent, it's so flickering, you know? Even if you're like, wait, but it's there, the breath, I'm breathing, yeah, but for a second I start thinking about tomorrow, the breath is not there in my consciousness, it's gone, it has disappeared, vanished. And then I feel like, oh, it was always there, it's there again. But it's actually very flickering, the flickering nature of experience. The Buddha talks about this. There's nothing that is not flickering. Even the things that weigh a lot, tons, when you don't think about them, they're not there in your experience. They have flickered. And even your sense of self, which you might think of yourself as the turd at the center of the universe, <laughs> as one Zen teacher puts it that I find so, so I'm upset with myself, this unworthy being, you know. Even if that looks really real and serious, I might notice by clear attention that it's actually flickering. It's not true all the time. It's actually an illusion, an appearance. So is the breath. It appears and it disappears. Disappears. Uh, in time, but also in, in a moment, it vanishes in a second when suddenly a baby starts to cry. Breath is gone, you know, because experience is full of a, a vibration. You know. But this takes refinement of attention because you, you, can you see it for yourself? I can see it. It's like, wow, you need to be really attentive to see this. Otherwise, you just think the breath is there, the baby is there, the, and you don't see the flickering nature of experience. I'm talking from the point of view of a human being. It seems like that's what the teachings of the Buddha were from the specific point of view of a human being. He was not talking about how things are. I don't know if it's called ontology or, or something else, you know. There's a name for it. Is it. I don't think he's talking about the nature of reality. He's talking about the nature of reality from a human perspective, which is where we happen to be. Yeah. And so the breath is just one thing that he names as an, a worthy uh, object of attention. It's like, yeah, you could think about a lot of things, but I think putting attention to the breath as you're in the subway or waiting for the subway could be an actually really good use of time and attention. And he says, take becoming aware of posture. And when you hear this, notice what your mind does. Many of our minds will eat posture in terms of right posture. You know? But that's not what he talks about. He says, sitting, know that you're sitting. Because too often, you don't actually know you're sitting. You know that this person was supposed to call and they didn't call and why didn't they call and what are they thinking? You know, this you know. But the fact that you're sitting is way, way lost. It's lost. And to come back to something real, the Buddha says, seems to be saying, when walking, know you're walking. That is going to bring a lot of sanity to your mind. If you're interested in peace and uh, clarity and heart or vibrancy for things to be vibrant again you know 
get, you know, get out of your head and notice that when you're lying down, you're lying down. Oh my God, I wonder tomorrow, you know, etc. Like, no, become aware, wake up, waking up. The, you know, the awakening of the Buddha Awa- might be not much more than waking up to the fact that he's sitting. Oh, I'm sitting, you know, and you see this sometimes in images when he's like this, with his fingers like that, not over there. But uh, his uh, mind is absorbed by, will I succeed in freeing the heart, and is it even possible, and like waves of doubts and doubts, and at some point it just comes back to, hey, honey, sitting, sitting is happening. The rest is a construction of mind, and we can be vortexed, if that's a verb in English, (laughs) into that, you know, we could be fascinated by that for years, Am I worthy of something? Will I ever succeed? Will I find my life purpose? You know? And he's cutting through that. Come back to the body sitting here. So the the breath, the posture, the activities of the body, these are the exact instructions. When she turns her head, she knows she turns her head. When uh, uh, his arms unfold, he knows the arm is unfolding. And so that's really, really precise instruction to actually pay attention to what we're actually doing in life and how to find out how we're occupied, you know. Um, so I'll do this many times because that's to, for learning purposes here. So breath, you can do it with me. Posture, activities of the body. And then there's another one, parts of the body. And we did a really um, kind of a quick version in three that it seems to be very useful. And this last week, I was uh, teaching in a uh, week long in Toronto with uh, Bunny Duran, who's a, a colleague and friend, and uh, and she's from the First Nations, but American. So um, I don't know how she self uh, um, uh, self identifies as Indian or Indian American, but uh, she has a lot of knowledge in this practice. She loves the Dharma. And, uh, and so she was bringing this back through the help of uh, her own teacher, Ajahn uh, um, Analayo. And she said, oh, let's do the parts of the body, you know. Like, and so every morning for seven days, we would spend every morning some time just uh, scanning the body like we did with uh, uh, skin, flesh, and bones. And so why would we do that? Why would we do that? And I really enjoyed doing it, and I'll tell you why the Buddha wanted us to do this, I think, what I understand from the teachings. But uh, also, there was a surprising aspect to me, because I haven't done this much. I've done this a number of years ago with one teacher from from Burma. We did a lot of that. And to me, um, the practice that we try to do is non-conceptual. It's a a pre-ending reality, really from the felt sense. And as we were doing this, I was thinking, wow, but it's partly conceptual because I'm conceived, you know, I'm, I'm, I have images of the skin. I can feel it, but to a certain extent, there's, it's, a, it's kind of a, one part felt and one part imagined, you know, visualized, you know. And, um, and then I was reminded by Bunny and, uh, that it's actually the Buddha uses con- conceptualization in his, uh, in his teaching and in the practice of meditation also. And so it's a tricky thing to use because we could easily depart, but then we're using concepts in a very, like, oh, con- conceiving not of everything, 
we're conceiving of the skin on the body. So we're using the thinking mind to liberate the heart, the mind from um, wrong perceptions or wrong understanding. How does that work in terms of uh, bones, flesh, and skin? It's because many of us live with the only idea that the body is mine, and I want it to be mine, or I don't want it to be mine, I want that, that one to be mine, or parts of it. It's also objectified in the, the evaluation we have of it is its desirability. Is pretty, for some of us, is pretty much the only worth it as, you know, when we don't think about it. So check for yourself. It might be true or not. But the way we'll evaluate the body is like this part is too much like this. It's not enough like this. Comparing, using, com- like comparing the body to a certain image that is presented to us by delusion in the name of, you know, fashion magazines and corporations and all this. So I want the body to look, I want, its only goal is to be desirable, maybe, or if it's one of them, and I have to do grieving around that because, you know, that part of that part. Do you recognize sometime, something in this? It might be some parts to it for you. Uh, there is for me. And in suddenly sitting here and thinking skin, flesh, and bones, it cuts through that, huh? It's suddenly like flesh is like, oh, is my flesh desirable? You know, is my brain flesh, you know, <laughs> is my, are my organs? That, like, so the comparing mind, which is a source of suffering for human beings, drops. So it's not so much. Although we're good, you know, we can start, we can do things with that, you know. Give me enough time, I can do f- you know, flesh bones and start comparing them. <laughs> I'd like to have your bones. You know. But basically it's to cut through this, to cut through the image, the, the perception that body is desirable, you know, it's, or it's an expression of beauty, and to go to another level, another way. So to dissipate that m- mirage, that illusion or delusion, and maybe, maybe we can keep it too, you know, but at least we're not caught in just one world view, you know, that it can, and it releases also some, the, the uh, perception we have of mine. Huh? Suddenly it's a bag of bones, you know, mm-hmm. that is sitting there with flesh, and it doesn't appear so personal as, in, as identification and define. I'm not defined by my bones so much. Huh? Bones are bones. They're of the public domain. You could say, like, my bone, your bones, you know. But when it's like how I look and how you look, I would much prefer to look like you, you know, or something like that. And so it cuts through this. So that's one way that the mind can be liberated from its wrong perceptions. It's amazing how we can live with perception, not knowing their perceptions, not knowing their particular take, their made-up takes on reality. We think it's actually true. It's totally true. You know, and then we start, we're guided, and then we can find that, oh, actually, there's a whole other way to experience life. And in this case, the body, yeah? And what does he talk about also senses, the experiences of the senses? And we talk a lot about this when we practice, about becoming aware of hearing. And the, again, the incapacity to actually own hearing, hearing happens by itself and it's it's dynamic it's alive you cannot own hearing 
you know, it's moments of hearing. They belong to the universe, to nature. And taste and smells do this, and sensation appear and disappear. And so it also is to break the idea of a body like a thing that is the same thing and is mine and is like that. As I pay attention to this sensory awareness, the tingling in the hands, my idea of hands changes. Suddenly it's filled and the live field of something. It's not so much my hand as a thing that belongs to me, but something that belongs to nature. And this other part of uh, this other way, so body as uh, breath, posture, activities of the body, and I might switch over things, but parts of the body, senses, all different ways to... Uh, to explore the experience of the body. And one other, there's two more, maybe one other is the element, elemental nature. So the Buddha says, think of the body, feel the body in terms of the elements. And we know now the chart of elements is much wider than four. Huh? There's all kinds of things in there that I don't even know about. You know, They have letters you know, and numbers to them. But the, uh, this kind of archaic version of four elements is what we can actually feel. We can feel heat. Temperature is something that we can feel cohesion, fluidity, rigidity, you know. We can feel that we have the water. We can feel the, the air element, the wind element, or the air as space element, or lightness if you want to associate air with lightness. And the earth element of hardness, uh, softness, roughness, uh, smoothness, whatever it is, you know, of the mass, color, shape, you know. So this can be uh, experienced, the earth element. And in that, why would we do this? Why would we uh, spend time just recognizing the earth element? I don't know if it did that to you, but to me that's almost instantaneous, that the understanding is like, wow, this belongs to nature. I have appropriated something like that shows the delusion of appropriation. You know, the, this, like, can you really own earth? When you're actually sitting in the earth, you're like, wow, earth belongs to earth. What is this weird thing of this is mine, you know? You know, the craziness of, and you see in what our war is made of, appropriation of earth element, a lot of it. And later it's going to be appropriation of water element an air element, and fire, as in petrol, as in, you know. And so here we have, we can explore this here, how, how the earth element is alive. And in this teaching, the Buddha says that, and Alarayo and Bani last week was saying this, and the reflection, in the contemplation, earth element, feel the earth element. Notice, this is a lump of earth. This is a earth sitting on earth, earth element externally, earth element internally, same thing, nature, nature. It's another way not to objectify the body, not to get caught in its desirability, not to get caught in owning, just to recognize. So to me, it's enormous relief to sit here and, oh, I give back to nature what belongs to it. I don't have to like own it and fear for it and you know 
I can, I can just for a moment at least, you know, have a different view of that experience here. Do you recognize something in there that could be of use? Earth element. And then you're noticing, it's not the only thing that is happening. There's a whole heat thing happening, you know? Cold, warm, hot, you know? And, and all this, and it's, it's happening. And the Buddha was saying, you know, sometimes there's no more heat anywhere. Everything is cold. And sometimes there's no more coolness anywhere. Everything is hot. And I know some of you know that really well. <laughs> And so, and he says, outside and externally, sometimes it's like this, you know, and and in the body, it's the same thing. There's all kinds of movements of coolness and coldness that are happening. And can that be that? Can that be nature? Yeah. And he says, the element uh, of water, sometimes you can look everywhere. There's no more water anywhere in the area. None, you know desertification or desert experience and sometimes the element of water takes over <laughs> we've seen it here around here in the last few weeks and you know and so there's variations in that and here also you can experience it in the throat in the mouth in the lungs or wherever you know in the belly in the skin <laughs> you know and so uh, and in the fluidity how uh, the breath, you know, is is, a, uh, is possible because of some kind of uh, fluidity and also cohesion. The right amount of water will make it things stays together, you know. And if there's not enough, you know, like when somebody dies, the element of water leaves. If you leave the body there for many days, at some point, you know. It's a long process, but at some point the bones will disintegrate because they won't have the water element in them, you know. So it'll be like a flower if you blow on it without water. And so he's in inviting us to reflect on this, to feel the uh, elemental nature of the body, to cut through this uh, wrongful uh, or unbeneficial, uh, stressful um, mistaken identification, you know, that there is the, it's there, and it's, it, we take care of it, but that belongs to nature, you know, it, it really, truly, deeply belongs to it, it's made by it, it's it, and it will be, it will be it again later, when we, whatever that is, is gone, you know. And, uh, and the last thing we didn't do and won't do is uh, maybe you know that, that in Asia where these teachings are coming from, uh, were born and nurtured and cultivated and protected and, uh, and uh, embodied and uh, transmitted. Uh, over there in Asia, in the monastery, every monastery is uh, related, associated with a morgue. And uh, like in Bangkok, the city monasteries are related to different uh, morgues. And, and one of the practice, so another practice of awareness of the body is the contemplation of the stages of decay of the body. Mm-hmm. And so the instruction would be, if you have the chance sometimes in nature to find dead animal, to run across a dead animal, to actually stop. 
the Buddha would present this as an extremely precious moment to actually stop and notice what stage it's at and notice the absence of life in it, you know, that it's actually something that is actually absolutely natural, belongs to nature, is part of nature, and to consider that this is going to happen here. This is going to happen here. So kind of like uh, slowly preparing the grounds for this, you know, instead of a shock uh, later when you hear the news that it's on heading in that direction, you know, that yeah, can be like, oh yeah, I've been contemplating this. This is part of nature. I know that. Maybe, maybe now I'm going to know it in different ways, you know, but it's already been in my mind. It's already been considered. So these are the different ways to, uh, that the Buddha invited us in this first foundation, four foundation, first one, the body, and the different ways to uh, attend to it. Many of these ways also are to um, uh, foster or cultivate or lead to the opening of the heart, uh, an intimate encounter with uh, the ephemerality of life, with the fact that we can't own anything, tends to open the heart in terms of liberating it, oh. or uh, making compassion arise. Wow, the human predicament cannot own stuff, control it. Wow. All in the same boat. All in the same situation together. That makes things a lot more democratic. You know? And suddenly, you know, differences and biases and status and all this becomes a little bit more and the heart can shine. Oh, you're alive. It's precious. It's ephemeral. It's sensitive. It's, uh, it's not easy to experience. Let me care about you, you know, uh, all living beings. Any, um, any questions, objections, <laughs> nuances, uh, clarifications? So leaving the ideas we have about stuff, which is a lot of where we spend our time, to actually enter this uh, reality, enter this realm uh, of display of elements. That's one way that is described uh, the, real the physical reality, which is really happening. You know, the Buddha is not saying this is all imagined. It's imagined in the way that we perceived it, we perceive it, you know, the way that the meaning we give to, to it. You know, like for example, we might see this and think this is a ball. This is a ball. You know, but if there was a plant in it, or if it, you know, like there's a meaning we give to that. You know, and uh, well, actually, maybe I'm thinking maybe Doug would come here. Maybe they would also recognize a ball and come and check it out. <laughs> if there's something to eat in there, you know. <laughs> but um, you know, if a Doug's comes here, it's not going to see a watch, you know. But there's going to be something hard, you know, something that has weight and is hard and knocks things, you know. But uh, apart from that, you know, that it's a desirable watch or undesirable or, 
or that it's a watch. You know, it's, this is added on meaning that human beings give to things. And so we go around all day long giving meaning, thinking it's inherent, that it is the thing, you know. This is really what it is, you know. And the more we pay attention, the more we can actually clarify that a lot of the meaning we give to things, it's not inherent. It's culturally created, created from family experience, created from uh, fear, created from different mind states, you know. And so maybe we live in a world that is much more simple than that, at least at the physical level, four elements. Yes? Um, I love the idea of imagining nature expressing itself in the body. Um, I think uh, it's interesting to me, when, just in that meditation and, and my practice regularly, I'm really picking up on um, how much of my awareness is tied to my sense of self. And I don't, it's not a new, I think most of us, I don't want to generalize, but um, even sounds that I hear, it's very much how does that impact me versus um, a sound being a sound. And uh, I really, I liked the, the sort of bringing it back to the, the bones um, element of that meditation and because it was such a grounding feeling mm. that I felt in the body. And for the first time, I actually was like, oh, I don't even know if I've ever felt the skin on my face before. And it was just a really nice experience. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Good, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this that you're talking about, how everything seems to refer back to a self. Mm -hmm. huh? And so in the same example, like, so there is something there, and we give it meaning, and we, you know, it's a watch, and it's telling the time, and it's really important to follow the time and everything. And so there's experiences of hearing, experiences of sense and, and the way it's perceived and that's the delusion of human beings that the Buddha wants to address it's like this thing about me and moi that is at the center of everything it might actually just be a take just just be a, a way a constructed way to experience things you know and so is it possible to release some of this through this, these practices that's what we're doing we're releasing some of it and we can still live in the world, you know, we don't become like, like this, you know, as Jack, uh, one of my teachers, Jack Confield, often f says, you know, yeah, our view is as vast as the sky, like we can know that there's nothing absolutely personal that is really mine, etc., it's, it's the universe, it's nature, so we, our mind is as vast as the sky, but we also remember our postal code, you know, or our social security number. You know, so you don't go around and people have to like, you know, like it's good to actually be able to navigate the different kinds of reality. There's a reality that is conventional. It's a created reality by human beings. This conventional reality says, that, okay, do we agree? This is mine, this, this and this. These are mine. Yeah. And these, this, this, they're to the center. It's ultimately, it's not true. It's, it's very ephemeral, little understandings, conventional, cultural, you know, it has no reality to it except the one we give it. And, but when we give it, then we want to honor it and know, be able to play the game well, you know. Oh, I really understand what is mine and not mine, what is, you know, etc. But not be caught in it which most of us are caught in it, you know, when the thing is gone, like, it was really mine, it was my, my thing. No, no, it was not yours, honey. 
Like it was, it was, just, it was like so not yours. <laughs> it's so been proven now, you know, that hearing was not yours because it's gone. Sight was not yours because it's gone. Intelligence, memory, health, not yours, you know. But there, really, happening now, there is really hearing. You know? It counts. So that clarification takes time. We need to be very patient, loving, and also dedicated. I like that you say when I practice daily or when I do my practice I'm happy you're doing this because for me what it means is like wow you're going to clarify things you know that's going to be liberating you're going to see through the fog the delusion you know and then you'll be able to still own things and play and take responsibility I said that Mm -hmm. but you'll know you'll know that it was you know greed at that moment or, or when there's a sense of you unworthy You'll know it's just an appearance. It's a cute little mistaken view, you know, and so there'll be tenderness to it. Oh, honey, you know, it's presenting the view of me unworthy, you know. It's just, it's absolutely light and uh, untrue, and, but appearing, it is appearing. You know. Thank you. It's deep, no? Is it, is it me or it's? <laughs> it feels pretty deep to me. Yeah. I'm often struck by how um, challenging it is to um, have an intimate, kind of direct connection to the body, and particularly for me in that exercise, you guided us through the bones. Like I couldn't feel my bones at all in a non-conceptual way. Yeah. And I just wondered if you have any thoughts as to. I mean, it seems like. Language is incredibly um, useful to us as a species, so much so that it feels like it's difficult to um, allow its energy to dissipate. Mm. Yeah. But do you, I wonder if you have any thoughts on yeah, I, language is so... Like, yeah, so how can language help us? Because language is very powerful. It can help liberate and it can also confuse you know, and separate and can do all kinds of things, as we know. So it's a very delicate instrument. We're trying to use it well, and it's probably very messy, you know. But uh, one thing that came to mind as you were saying this is I was thinking about Bonnie last week. Bonnie was saying that she heard another teacher, and that's how we carried things around, you know. So now I'm carrying uh, Bonnie's word, but she she was pointing to an experience I had never really noticed, but is happening uh, it can be in gross form or in subtle forms, but she said sometimes we actually are greedy for felt sense experience meditators. So we're sitting there and we're thinking, I want to feel my bones, you know? And so we're not actually totally meeting the thing as it is. We have, we're greedy for f- sensations. Do you recognize that? And so it's good to recognize that if it's happening. And so in this practice of the... It's particular, you know, it's a particular way. It's the felt sense, if, I, if we were doing a contemplation of the senses, sensory awareness, might be more palpable, you know, touch, heat, uh, you know, hearing, tasting when tasting something that has taste, you know. But uh, bones and flesh and skin, it'll work in some areas of the body and it won't in others, and, or some of these parts might not... Actually, the real teaching of the Buddha is 32 parts. So, 
hair of the head, hair of the skin, hair of the body, teeth, uh, bones, bone marrow, uh, tendons. Uh, so there's like, uh, so 32, there's 10 liquids and 22 uh, solids. You know, excrement, uh, di- partly digested food, uh, you know, liver, lungs, heart, uh, and then fluid, bile, <laughs> saliva, fluid of the joints. Uh, I don't know. So there's a whole list. I don't think you're going to actually be able to experience every one of these, you know. But that's where we say concepts are welcome here, like images, ideas, fabricated ideas, you know, like like it's, you're not maybe going to see exactly your bone, you're going to imagine something. If you studied anatomy, you might have a better version than the version that I might see when I see my leg, you know, I don't know if I'm seeing a bone, like a dog bone, you know, it's probably different a bit, you know, <laughs> you know, with the two things on the end, of <laughs> so maybe it's a little different, <laughs> I might learn later there's actually two bones in there, <laughs> but it's actually okay in that contemplation to have a but notice the mind that wants to acquire something, you know, and, and, and the practice is to learn to work with what is there, what is available, you know, and is it, can that be onward leading, yeah, so. Just as a quick follow-up question, one thing that I have a hard time getting a felt sense of is my heart, and there's so much, um, you know, uh, talk about the sure heart's release and yeah. heart-mind and all that kind of stuff, and then when the, the child downstairs was crying earlier, I felt this like, strong pull, and I often notice that my mind kind of judges me for not being in touch with my heart. But I'm wondering, like, the, the language that we use seems symbolic. I know it's more than just symbolic, because the heart is a real organ yeah. with a spider web with neural networks around it and all that kind of stuff. But what other people describe as being the heart, sometimes I feel like it's more like, you know, like parts of my body or yeah. something. Yeah. But I guess I'm just wondering, I often find myself wondering what are the physiological kind of sensations and qualities associated with yeah. the heart or the yeah. language that we use when we talk about the heart. Yeah. Over the years, there's probably like so many ways this, I don't know this, I wonder if somebody wrote a book about this, the symbol of the heart and what it means and where it's located and, and the, you know, the, the neurology of it, the, the anatomy of it, but also the symbolism of it. And so when I use the word heart, it's used in many ways. Sometimes it's the actual physical heart, you know, boom, 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 boom. And in the, I know that in the, in the Abhidhamma, in a very specific Buddhist practice, they say that, uh, like, the conscious... Is, is it the, there's something, anyway, that it's really physically in the heart, you know, physically, uh, like the center of emotions, maybe, in the heart. But often we refer to the... When I say the heart, I don't actually refer to any physical region, but uh, the world of emotions, which is both felt inwardly as the... in the field of the psyche or the heart, you could say. So, you know, the tonality in the heart, and it could be physical, but it's also in the mind, in the... In the in the ambient ambient atmosphere or whatever, the, 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 you know, the of joy, of sadness, of longing, you know, of loss, you know, 
And so, and this we know has a lot of uh, physical components. Often the field of emotions is here, here, here. But emotions can really be felt here and in all kinds of uh, regions of the body, you know, like, you know, in the neck. And in the, But often for human beings, emotions, like, if something is said that you don't like, often the contraction will happen around here, you know, or here. And so for some people, they'll say, like, the heart for me is really here. This is where I feel stuff. And others, you know, I've seen many students over the years, and some people, they always come back to the throat. The throat is the center of emotions for, for them, you know. For me, it's very much the chest. But, and at different times, somewhere else, you know, I feel it in the guts sometimes. But it's also, it might um, relate to something else that is not an aspect that is not physical, that is a tone, like joy, Joy might be felt, you know, you can have goosebump of joy and ecstasy, and it can be felt like this, but maybe there's a tonality in the mind. Or maybe the, you know, when there's joy, for example, or hope or confidence, you might feel it in the body, but you might feel it also in perception. It means that when you think of the future, it will appear differently. So in depression, in... Uh, in um, discouragement it's not just felt physically maybe but maybe the outlook or the way I even look at the past which is supposed to have happened and be settled with you know it's, oh I had such amazing parents you know and they've been so and then in another mood they could see like yeah well they did their best you know <laughs> but now I have to fix the whole thing you know <laughs> yeah and so the kinds of thoughts you know loving thoughts a little bit more round and open than like angry, hateful thoughts, you know, which have often no nuance, you know, this is how it is, always been like that. And so when we talk about the heart, we're talking about all this. When I say the, when I say the heart's release, like that's an expression in this uh, tradition, the heart's release, for me it means it's about understanding. So it might be a felt sense, an access to joy, to opening, but it's going to be an, a, a clar clarity, an understanding of the world that is aligned with how the world uh, works, you know, instead of, like, always being in shock. Oh, I thought it was supposed to be like that, you know, and why is it like that, you know? The heart's release is the release of expectations, the release of uh, hopes that it would be otherwise than it is, you know? So it's, it's a very rich field. Mm. Um, when I say that this practice, for example, of first foundation of being in the body, in the embodied, uh, in the body, will um, lead to the opening of the heart, I'm thinking in, in uh, as you might know in Buddhist psychology, the four main qualities of the heart. Four ways to talk about this is uh, compassion. So to actually really touch the ache in the body or the ache in the body that is emotional, to actually really come close to it, will cultivate compassion, the capacity to be with what is difficult, with care, with love, instead of reactivity, uh, inner collapsing despair, you know. So the heart's release, the qualities of the heart, uh, will, uh, it will be compassion, it will be uh, stability, equanimity is a quality of the heart. The heart that can feel but doesn't fall in, the dis in despair, in clinging, that can really feel something happening 
and let it go also. Let trouble be there with stability, like courage. Courage comes from heart. So that these kinds of qualities, so stability, equanimity, and joy. And one way that it's, uh, it's, described, it's described in the teachings around uh, joy you, and that uh, awareness of the body can lead to this is uh, a full... The Buddha used the example of a bottle, but I'll take the bowl. When the bowl is empty, anything can come in the bowl. So the Buddha says, Mara can come in the bowl. The representation of the difficult emotions, doubt and confusion and self-loathing and judgment and comparing and all this can come in. But he says, when the ball is full, nothing can come in. And the fullness that he talks about for him is the fullness of attention in the body. The presence suffusing the body sitting, suffusing the body of breath, if you take it in that sense. Like the attention fully, generously given to uh, the experience of breathing or any other experience you could when in giving full attention to bell ringing kind of letting the presence fall into that experience arising and passing So the opposite of scatteredness, like being fully given to something, fully given to hearing, hearing. in that there can happen uh, an experience of contentment. Suddenly it's full. I'm not divided. My attention is not divi- divided, fragmented anymore. Everything is gathered, unified. So there's just hearing. And it could even be the hearing of a bus passing by. Suddenly it becomes full. Like, it's not like, who am I? What's going to happen later? Like, I'm not occupied like that. And so in that, joy can arise. So that's extremely present on the path. The quality of the presence as a source, uh, an access to joy, contentment, uh, an experience of fullness. This is really, really available for human beings. For me, I've seen over the years, this, this door is spontaneously opens and is wide open. It closes really quickly too. <laughs> but when I sit, often like as I sit and I give attention, suddenly there's like joy comes, you know, because there's just, wow, that light, even through the eyes lid closes, that softness, or suddenly it's somewhere else, wow, that brightness is such what it is. Or that coldness or heat or coolness. Wow. There's something full about it. You know? Or just the noticing that the body is sensitive, can feel. It's just amazing. And so, boom, joy is there. You know? And then, you know, <laughs> something. Some kind of positioning or something, uh, something can happen. But, uh, it's, I can see, you know, this practice of embodiment is, uh, brings joy. So if I'm given completely to uh, the just trying to, uh, just scanning the body with skin, giving fully attention to that, not the other version if I was better at it, not that, that's scattered, that's split attention, but like this now, face, skin of the face. 
Then there's something that is full, that to me is a direct access to joy. So joy, compassion, uh, equilibrium, equanimity, balance, a heart that is balanced, and benevolence. These are the main qualities of the heart when when we talk about the qualities of the heart. And so all these practices are aimed at that, to release the, uh, the comparing mind, to release the mind that wants to acquire, to relieve the mind from uh, uh, its idea of permanence, you know, and to enter in the world of uh, ephemerality. So these are instructions for the sitting, but instructions for the rest of the day and maybe the week. So instead of putting, putting the attention where we usually habitually put it, where it's, it's drawn because of neural pathways, you know, uh, to actually work at developing new ways of uh, being attentive uh, and being there on and, and days like this, maybe it's easy. You come out and you're called to feel the heat. And if it feels like a little too hot, then see if you can allow it, allow it to be too hot. Instead of like, touch it for a second, and then, oh my God, you know, heat wave already, you know, from cold to hot, you know. Just see, can we stay here? Can I stay here? Can I stay here? This is the heart being tenderized. Be here. Stay around. Stay around. See. Hear. Feel. Feel. Stay there. The mind will want to depart all the time to describe, analyze, make associations, this, and just invite it to stay. Can you stay, my love? Can we stay here? Stay here and learn how to be here, how to inhabit uh, this realm and this heart, however it is today, you know, whatever shape it is today. You know, sometimes it presses on the heart, sometimes the heart is light, you know, and can it, can it be found? Can I allow it to be felt? So let's maybe just uh, sit uh, for a few moments in silence and just experience the dynamic, river-like nature of the body. yourself if you want fully to hearing to the symphony of silences and vibrations and sounds or to the symphony of the hands resting tingling alive
may our exploration of the first foundation of mindfulness uh, reveal to us different views of reality that may they be uh, liberating these new understanding views and perceptions may they free the heart from uh, encagement entanglement from oppression may it make the heart shine freely with benevolence and joy and care. May all beings be free. Okay, thank you so much for exploring this. Some things human beings have been exploring for thousands of years. So it's good to think that we're part of a a lineage. And uh, I wish you a good week. And on the way out, you'll see there's two boxes here, as many of you know. One box to support the center here, offering the space uh, joyfully, freely. And uh, one box uh, to sustain, support the first foundation of this teacher. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.